Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, October 13th, 2012, and this is episode 998 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today's going to be an interesting show. It's Monday, and I know you're expecting a feedback show. Uh, but I got this week stacked with guests, and I've got episode 1000 coming up. And I've got this concept that I have to get out. Uh, that I'm calling uh, today's show Solutions to Some of the Big Problems, the really big, seemingly insurmountable problems, and how they're really not so insurmountable. And this is a direct result of many of the things that came out during the James Howard Kunstler interview last week. And this is going to be have some replies and some things to, where I disagree with, in many places where I agree with Mr. Kunstler, And uh, maybe a further explanation as to why I didn't challenge him on some of his statements. And, you know, I'll, I'll say that up front. It's because you don't come on Survival Podcast as a guest to be debated. That's not what I do. I bring people on the show to let them put out their information, and then I rely on you as an individual to be intelligent enough, informed enough, and resourceful enough to go through that and go, I like this, I like that, that's bullshit, I don't like that, that's nonsense, and that really makes sense, and this I don't know, so I'm going to research it further. Um, and then I get emails from some of you guys that seem to think that if I bring a guest on, the very fact that they're here as a guest that like implies endorsement, like, like they're a sponsor or something, a guest is not a sponsor. Uh, so I want to clear some of that up, but I really want to do this more of a high level, how do we fix the really big problems? And I want to dispel some myths about absolute unmitigated collapse that I just don't see coming, again, unless we have that one in a million shot, you know, a comet or something like that. Um, and I want to tell you why people gravitate, why do people like Kunstler insist that that's the only outcome we're going to have? It might surprise you why. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, HarvestEating.com, the awesome Chef Keith Snow, also a member of our expert council, gave us two really great answers to questions on Friday of this week. And Chef Keith teaches you to cook seasonally and locally. And you know what? After today's show, you're going to see an even greater value to that concept. So I would recommend that you get on over to HarvestEating.com, check out everything that Chef Keith has over there, from the instructions uh, to his products to his books, everything like that. Uh, it's an incredibly valuable resource. Learning how to cook as a life skill is something we've lost in America, and I think restoring the skills to this nation is a big part of restoring the nation. And that's one way that we can do that, is restoring the ability to feed ourselves and feed our families nutritious meals. So check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Remember, he now gives 10% off to all T uh, MSB members. So if you're an MSB member, before you buy anything on Keith's site, get on over into your MSB and get the discount code. You know another skill that we used to have in this country was the ability to fix things and do things and repair things and make things. And if you went you know, into a household uh, back in the 1950s and 60s and something broke in that house, The man of the house or maybe one of the older boys would work at fixing it long before they would call anybody. Sometimes maybe too long before they would call somebody. There's a time to bring an expert in. But they had basic skills to be able to repair things. And we've lost that. And part of that is just having craftsmanship knowledge. One place to practice that could be with knives and knife making or maybe holster making. Well, if you get over to knifekits.com, they have great kits to help you make knives or make holsters, or make uh, you know a holster basically for a gun, for a knife, for anything, using Kydex. 
uh, instructional videos, instructional books, and it's amazing how skills translate. Once you know, let's say, how to set and finish handle material for a knife, how many other places will that you know, transcend to? When you really learn how to sharpen a knife properly, how many other tools are there out there that you, know, you kind of wish your axe was a little sharper or what have you? Is it exactly the same process? No, but do the skills translate? Yes. So check out KnifeKits.com and see them not just as a place to get a really cool kit or if you're already a master bladesmith, some really cool raw materials, but see it as another place where we can yet again restore our skill sets. And I think that's something very important, something I'm going to talk a lot about today. So our two sponsors today, HarvestEatingAndKnifeKits.com, both do discounts for the MSB. So last but not least, let me say, if you're not an MSB member yet, please consider joining Not only will you support this show, if you're buying things in the preparedness industry, the gardening industry, the homesteading industry, if you buy seeds for Pete's sakes, you'll probably save uh, enough money to, to, to you know justify your membership. If you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like a paramedic, active duty, or prior service, please, cons- please email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And I will get back to you with a discount code to thank you for your service, and you can save even more money that way. All right. Now, with that wrapped up, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Um, what I want to start out with is a, a, what's called perception bias. And I want to put it in a very simple, because this is a deep theory. We, I can do two and a half hours on it and only do half-assed job on it because I'm not some Ph.D. in you know psychology and theory. But I want to take it to a very simplified way of understanding perception bias and what it really means and how we can take somebody where I am as libertarian, I think, as it gets, other than going to the, the, the realm of anarchy, because I don't believe in a world without a state. I re- believe in a world with a very restricted state that only does certain things that public entities would do best, that, that are for the good of all. Okay, um, But I'm very, very libertarian. Um, I find most Republicans in office today to be socialists. That's, that you're pretty libertarian when you're saying that. Um, and I actually find them to be ideologue socialists who have this, this uh, conservative component to people's private lives where they want to enforce what they see as morality on somebody else, even when that person's not doing anybody else harm. So I'm way over on the, on the libertarian end of the spectrum. Mr. Kunstler comes to the show... And we have this interview, and we actually get along quite well, but he's from a very liberal end of the spectrum. His, if you, especially if you read his earlier works and listen to his earlier uh, speaking engagements and things like that from back going back 10 years and more, very, very liberal. Very, very, the government should fix it, and the government should do this, and very much a believer in AGW and all this other stuff. And you would think the two of us would come together and just be like mud and oil, you know, just make a mess. But yet we're able to get along. That's because I am aware of something that many people are not, and that is this perception bias. And when you understand perception bias, you realize that even if the other person's wrong, it doesn't mean you can't learn from them. Even if you're never going to agree with their totality, it doesn't mean that somewhere you don't have common ground and somewhere you can't learn from each other. So think about it this way. Think about a really big nail, you know, like a big giant spike. You know, like something that you could drive through a couple 4x4s and hold it together or bigger. Well, big galvanized hot dip nails that you would find that you pay, you know, a dollar a piece for at like Home Depot or Lowe's. Now, imagine you've never seen one before. You have no idea what it looks like. And imagine someone sets one up so the only thing you can see is a perfectly aligned version of that nail looking at the point, the business end that goes into the wood. 
You can't see the shaft. You don't know how long it is. You can sort of see the head sort of diff, you know, at the, at the end. Uh, but it's so long and it's so far away, you really can't tell what it is. What you mostly see is a point. Okay? Now imagine someone else has this nail set up completely the opposite from you. All they see is the head of the nail. The flat part of the head. They can't see any shaft. They can't see it. And imagine that you walk by that image every day of your life for 20 years. And all you ever do when you look over is you see the point. And this other individual walks the opposite direction and always sees the head. And neither one of you have any idea about this object other than what you've seen. Both of you are ingrained with perception bias. Now, if you try to explain to this other individual that that this object is pointed and sharp, he's not going to believe you, right? Especially if he doesn't understand that there's a whole realm of dimensions around it. And if he tries to explain to you that this object is very very thin and flat and round, right, you're probably not going to believe him either. But if the two of you would shut up for a minute and discuss what you've seen and why you believe it to be that way, you might begin to realize, wait a minute, this, this object has two ends, Right? So this idea or this theory has two viewpoints. One is pointed, one is flat. This gives us a better understanding of the picture of the whole. But how long is it? And those two pieces of information alone will never determine the length. You'll have to get another view of this spike to determine that it's actually a long cylinder with a point on one end and an enlarged flat spot on the other. Then not only might you not might you understand the object, but you might might know what to do with it, because the two views that you had up till this point really didn't do anything for you for either one of you to see the function of the object. But yet something with no function you'll argue about. There's so many things in life like that, and that perception bias is why we close off the opposing idea without considering it. Now that doesn't mean that. If I consider your idea, I'm somehow obligated to just listen to what you say and go, oh, okay, well, that all makes sense now, so I'm going to throw away everything I believe in and start believing in what you believe in. That's a weak-minded person. And there's a lot of people out there that are so ingrained in their own stupidity, ignorance, and arrogance that they believe that once they've given you their, their, your, their opinion and you've heard it, if you don't agree, you're insulting them or putting them out. And this is where we all need to grow the hell up and act like adults and stop acting like that. If you come to somebody like me with a socialist agenda, it doesn't mean I can't learn anything from you, but I'm not going to become a socialist. right? If you come to me from a, a governmental, well, if we just could get the right Republicans in charge, I'm not going to come to your side. It doesn't mean you might not make a point that I'll, that I'll gain from and build on. This is how we build solutions going forward. So I wanted to start with that in mind. The next thing I want to start with is why many people insist on a total collapse in the future or some predetermined, predefined way the future will go, whether it's collapse or otherwise, or it's going to be Star Trek, right? The two extremes. The reality is, and this is very true of our guest, Mr. Kunstler, they look at society and they realize what we've lost. We've lost the sense of community. We've lost a sense of belonging. We've lost skill sets. We've lost so much. And they think it, it can't go on like this. And then this is the this is the part where it gets screwed up. A piece of them wants it to collapse. And once they attach themselves 
to the desire. They build a narrative that will fulfill the fantasy. This is true if we read something like Mr. Rawls's book, Patriots, and some other spinoffs of it, right? Rawls looks at the world more from my view than Kunstler's view, but he believes that government has done so many things to damage the people that the government must pay by failing. And then the people will pay when that fails because we've allowed it, and then there'll be a reckoning, and then there'll be a rebuilding the way that things are supposed to be. Revolutions typically do not work out that way. One of the very few revolutions that worked out for the greater good was the American Revolution. Most revolutions ended with a lot of bloodshed and worse, not better, after they were over. Right? I brought this up with Kunstler, and he didn't want to talk about it, so I let him go. But yeah, this, like, you know, kill all the Stalin, Stalin kills the farmers and then wonders why the people starve. You know, liberal does not want to talk about that. But that's the perception bias. Well, it can't be, that's just one crazy guy, Joe. Stalin, he's a bad guy. Bad guy. That wasn't, that wasn't the way, that's not the way it was supposed to work. Well, it's the way it did work. So, when we look at these things like this, you have to understand that people that are writing a narrative, whether it's patriots or world made by hand, they're writing this future based on their desires. Part of them knows it's horrible. Part of them knows it's awful. And part of them, I, I think most people are compassionate, kind individuals as over, overall as a whole. They don't really want the pain that will come with it, but they see it as there's no other alternative. And this fantasy in their head of things would actually be better in the end this way allows them to conduct a narrative. So then if they're science-minded, like Kunstler, You go out and find theories that will lead to the conclusion that you've already drawn, right? Your perception bias drives you to go out and find peak oil, um, AGW, which is anthropomorphic global warming, or human-induced climate change, specifically today with CO2, right? And then you find a way to combine these things that leads to a point where you've already determined that mankind must go for the sake of the planet or the sake of the individual or whatever it is in your mind. So here you have two very clear illustrations. And if you look at the blueprints laid out by both of these authors coming from two very different worlds, when you really peel back with logic, neither one of them really makes a lot of sense. When I'm done today, you'll understand why, why I feel that way at least. You may not agree, but you'll understand if you let go of your perception bias... And listen to me today, you'll understand why I feel that way. And I want to start out with why we're not going to see a total energy collapse in our lifetimes. It's not going to happen. You will not, if you're listening to me right now and you're old enough to, to understand what I'm articulating, you will not see the end of energy. You won't. And I mean, Jason Akers put it to me this way, and he wasn't happy about it, but he said, we'll burn down the last pine tree before one kid turns off an Xbox in this country. And to, there's a degree of truth there. I don't think it's 100% true because I don't think it's physically possible that the system would break down before the last pine tree got burned. But there's an, there's an air of truth to that. People aren't going to give up their cars, right? They're not. Right? We're going to live in this world where everybody lives in a little town and doesn't know anybody except the people in this town and there's a train to go somewhere else. And it, it ain't going to happen. And here's why. Number one, there is more energy available than anybody wants to admit On the side, picking, talking about peak oil collapse. Is oil in a peak right now? I don't know. Could it be? 
Absolutely yes. Could the peak be off another decade or two? Yes. Could the top of the bell curve be four decades long before it starts to come down? Yes. Could it be three? Could it be three years? I don't know. Yes, I'm conceding that oil could begin to decline in production in the next couple of years. And I'm also saying it might not. But even if it does, there's more coal and natural gas in this country than we need to keep things running the way that they are. And, if you, and when people say, well, they won't do it because, no, they will do it. They'll dig it up, they'll drill it out, they'll burn it, and they'll generate energy with it. They will do it. Here's the problem. While I don't believe in human-induced global warming due to CO2, I do, in fact, believe that there are many things that people can do to damage the environment. And I do think there is a way that we can warm the planet past what's safe. And I do think that it's possible and even probable that it can happen. And I think the number one way we can do that is with misuse of natural gas. Methane will raise the global temperature for at least in large amounts into the atmosphere. A hell of a lot more than CO2. And I want to cover something here for you guys. And I want everybody listening to me that are on the complete, we can rape the planet and kill it, it doesn't matter, it's all lies, I don't believe in environmentalism. And the la-la hippie granola chewer that says, dude, if we have like one more tailpipe, like the planet's going to go into a point like where we can't survive. I want you to listen to me about this, and I want you to just open your mind to this thought. I've been asked, Jack, what would it take for you to believe that CO2 is causing global warming, on a, a significant scale anyway? And my answer is very simple, the scientific method. Now, I actually feel stupid that I have to do this because people on this, this bandwagon always talk about science. But I have to now tell you what the scientific method is because all these people that think consensus and computer models are science probably have forgotten what we learned in fifth grade, which is the scientific method. But the reality is that long ago, people believed stupid shit. They believed that rotting meat created maggots. Because they saw rotting meat one day, and then they saw maggots the next day. And they didn't understand that, well, a fly comes in here and lays an egg and what have you. So the scientific method, and this is a you know, way this is taught in grade school. One way we could do this, we could take a piece of rotting meat and cover it with, a, with something that keeps anything from getting on it on it. And then we can leave one open, and if one develops maggots and one doesn't, then we don't know what it is yet. But we know that something outside of the meat itself is generating the maggots. We have a control and an experimental group. Okay? That's very, this is very, very simple shit. And it drives me crazy that people that say, oh, the science says, don't even think this way. Right? We have to do, then we can observe, well, flies land on the meat. Hmm. So is, is it something in the air getting there, or are the flies the key? Right? And then we can put something like netting that would allow air through, but not the flies through, and let a piece of meat, and if maggots don't show up, then there's something to maybe it's the flies. Well, then we can take the, 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 the maggots, and let them gestate and see that they do, in fact, become flies. And now we can draw a reasonable theory. We can go beyond, we have a hypothesis, a, an educated guess based on experimentation, that flies are the cause of the maggots, and the maggots turn into flies. Now we have a theory, because the theory is backed up by experiment versus a control. So, how would you convince Jack Spirico that global warming is being caused by CO2? You would have to prove to me that CO2 breaks the scientific law that we've known about for a long time. See, there's theories and there's law, right? There's not a theory of gravity. It's not a theory. It's a law. You drop shit, it falls, right? Very simple. But we have a theory of evolution because we really can't explain all of it now, can we? And then we have a theory of creationism. And then we have a theory of intelligent design. And all three of these theories compete 
to decide who's right. And I'm not going there, so don't try to drag me there, okay? But that's, that's an example of a theory. Where nobody questions gravity, you drop shit, it falls, okay? We have a scientific law about CO2 and how it affects ultraviolet radiation and heat in an atmosphere. And that is that when you have none of it, and you add a tiny bit of it to an atmosphere, it has a huge effect. It creates a great deal of reflection. And it begins to immediately diminish. And by the time you get up to about one-third of one percent, God, I hate doing this. I didn't want to go here today, but I have to to make this all make sense to you. When you get up to about one-third of one percent, you get to a point of such diminishing returns, where CO2 has grabbed so many of the wavelengths that it's really good at reflecting that it almost has no impact if we double it from there. So, how, and there's all these computer models and you guess and refraction. No, you want a variable to be responsible, then you create an experiment using a single variable and demonstrate the variance, right? So you make a great big polycarbon sphere that represents Earth's atmosphere. You put a solid object in the center of it that represents the Earth. I know the atmosphere and polycarbon are different, but we're only testing one variable, okay? You create a rotational period of 24 hours. You put it on a tilt, just like planet Earth. You shine UV radiation at it in a measured amount to simulate the sun. You drive the CO2 up and you get a baseline. right? So you start out with no CO2. Then you add CO2 up to uh, two-tenths two of one percent. right? And then you go to three-tenths and four-tenths and you keep doing it. And you measure the difference with the exact same amount of energy going in. And you create a baseline for none. You create the peak that CO2 has and then demonstrate the peak not falling off. Well, they haven't done that. And you know why? Because you can't, because it does fall off to almost nothing. And it does it right about one-third of one percent, which, by the way, is about as much CO2 as we have in the atmosphere today. Um, there's also a new study out. It's pretty interesting. I don't want this show to be all about global warming, so I'm just going to put the link. It's on the, uh, the Daily Mail at the U.K. It's a uh, measurement of global mean temperatures all around the world for the last ten years. And what they basically say is, yes, um, the planet warmed. It warmed up until about 1996, and between 1996 and 2012, um, it, it's, it's done almost, well, absolutely nothing. In fact, we're at about a half a degree Celsius higher than the 14C world average over uh, th this period of time. So basically, the planet warmed and it plateaued, which actually would make perfect sense. It would actually make perfect sense with everything I've just told you, that CO2 can push the temperature higher to a point of diminishing returns, and then it's going to plateau and have very little impact. Now, why did I spend so much time talking about this when this is really what I don't want to talk about today? Because to put you in the right mindset, I have to tell you something that's going to be very hard for a lot of people on both sides of this, this issue to hear. If we just believe that the problem is CO2, we let ourselves off way too easy. It's way too easy to let go of. We can take, I, I can give you a list of a hundred things destroying the environment of this planet, none of them which are rectified by capping CO2 emissions. Mercury, dioxin, trioxin, desertification, right? The modern agricultural practices destroying topsoils, clear-cutting timber forests, old-growth forests to grow biofuels in, in, in tropical environments where the soils are so much... See, people understand that the soil in a tropical system is so much more delicate than it is in a temperate climate zone. It's so much easier to destroy. And you can just go on with these things. And there's all of these things that need to be fixed. And we're talking about fixing them here in a bit, so I'm not going to go there right now. 
But if we just say CO2 is the problem, we can... Oh, well, that's fine. Don't worry about that. We'll just cap CO2 and everything will be okay. And this is why politicians give it to you as a solution. They, they're following the same principle of modern medicine. There's a problem, the reaction, the solution's a pill. Give them the pill, take the pill, dumb them down with the pill. The kid's hyper. Instead of taking the kid outside to play, let's give them Ritalin. Let's give them a class 3 narcotic to, to, to solve the problem that the kid has too much energy instead of channeling the energy. They do it everywhere. When you start to recognize pattern, you recognize it everywhere. So I just want to say this today. One, you want to know what will convince me? Go do the experiment. Prove that CO2 doesn't behave the way we've known a scientific law that we've known it to behave for over a 100 years. And you say, well, if that's true, Jack, then why would they lie? You answer that question for me. But let me ask you this side. If we shelve the CO2 environment, the CO2 question, and we address all these other problems, do we not reduce carbon emissions? So even if that's an issue, doesn't that fix it? But if we just reduce carbon emissions, do we solve the other problems? And the answer is no, we don't. So those that want to chant the AGW chant, you're not doing anything to fix the real problem. And I'll ask you, if you're that person and you've had a hard time listening to this, at the end of today, at the end of this episode, rather than tell me I'm wrong, once you've heard my solutions, what would you ask me to physically do that I would not already be doing or I am not already doing? From a policy or an individual standpoint, is that a deal? Can we make that deal with each other? What would you have me do that I'm already not willing to do other than just believe in something that I can't believe in because it defies scientific law and no one can develop a control experiment following scientific method to demonstrate that it doesn't do that anymore. And please understand this, and I'm going to let it go from this point forward, I promise. And there's going to be a long damn time before I go here again on this. A model is not proof of anything. A consensus is not proof of anything. A control group and an experimental group with a single variance demonstrating the variance between the two groups is proof. So if you want me to believe it, give me that. All right, now let's move on from there. Um, I do want to talk about how we can actually drive global temperatures up and how we may be getting close to doing it already. And I do think there's a real danger with natural gas. And it's not from burning it. It's really not. Um, and this is part of why we won't have an energy collapse, and it's also part of the bigger problem. Natural gas and coal are not in short supply. They're not hard to get to, and in spite of the fact that some coal plants have shut down, some coal mines have shut down, if oil goes away, they'll dig it out of the freaking ground. And if you don't believe that, you're just, you don't understand human dynamics. All right? The second there's a, a real crunch on oil, coal will come out of the ground faster than you've ever seen it before. Natural gas is already coming out in such quantities that it's so cheap that they're producing less of it because they can produce more than anybody wants yet. But they're there. The big problem with, with natural gas is that with the fracking, not only do we do environmental damage to the area, but we create vents, and the methane begins to vent into the, into the atmosphere. You increase the methane in the atmosphere by a tenth of a percent, and you got a problem with global warming. You will drive up planetary temperatures, not by burning it and, and releasing mostly CO2. It actually burns much cleaner than coal and oil. But if you release it in its native form, you've got a problem. And you've got a bigger problem 
because there's places with massive amounts of methane stored in the ground, not very deep under ice. And if you drive the temperatures high enough that that melts and that methane begins to naturally vent, you got it possibly an even bigger problem of global warming. That said, I'd rather have a warmer planet than a colder one. And that's something we need to be honest about as well. You drop the global mean temperature three or four degrees and you got a real problem. You can't imagine the problem that that creates. If you go to the tropics, there's an abundance of life. But that's, that's part of the problem. The other problem, though, is you've got the localized pollution created by gas drilling. You've got ranchers with water that you can light on fire coming out of the ground. No one can tell you that's good for the environment. And then you've got coal. And we have so much coal. And there's this big bandwagon cry for coal. And I'm going to tell you guys something I've never revealed before. I believe that part of that whole movement, especially in the last year, is, is originated with Glenn Beck. And I know that may be hard to believe for some people, but I'm going to tell you a true, honest-to-God story. I'd raise my hand on, on every holy book known to man at the same time and, and take an oath on this. When I was at the Glenn Beck studio for the, 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 the spot that I did with him, Glenn did a lot of time talking to the audience and talking to people off-air. And one of the comments was, what industry should we support? And one of the other guests suggested coal. Because the Obama administration is so hard on coal. And there's a big belief that we can have coal converted to fuel. We can have coal this. We can have clean coal. The reality is when you mine coal, there's two substances that you bring out of the earth in great abundance that are extremely toxic to the environment. And one is sulfur and the other is mercury. Sulfur, when it leaches into the groundwater, takes up huge amounts of oxygen out of the water and destroys entire water systems. I've seen it. I've seen the results of it. I've seen creeks in where I grew up in Pennsylvania where the rocks are covered in an orange slime and the oxygen is so depleted that the fish can't live. And I've seen as environmental regulations came in and capped off this leaching sulfur and the mining process stopped. 20 years, these creeks that used to be orange slime... Now I've made a brook shroud in them. It only took two decades. And nobody actually did anything other than stop the damage going in. The mercury is a bigger issue because the mercury gets released, it ends up in our rain, it ends up in our oceans, and it's an environmental catastrophe. So natural gas and coal will prevent an energy collapse, but they'll create far greater environmental implications than the temperature going up a half a freaking degree. Centigrade, yes, I know. It's a little more than a half a degree Fahrenheit. Or How about a degree Fahrenheit? I know it's not a good thing from a stabilization standpoint, especially the way things are right now, but when you have a situation where we start driving mercury levels in the ocean up to a point where our fish from the ocean become completely unsafe to consume, which is where we're headed if we keep doing this shit, we got a problem. So all of you that think I don't care about the environment, I want you to understand today that my big solutions, and this is why I spent so much time on this, and I know it's going to be a long episode, but I really want the people out there to think I just hate the planet, I'm just some crazy libertarian, and to understand how concerned I am about real environmental implications as we move into solutions. I also want to go over something that... I said during the Kunstler interview that he didn't really get, he just said, oh, that's just one generation making the next generation's problems harder. It doesn't get the imminence, right? Because it doesn't jive with his theory, and when you're the top dog, you want your theory to be the one that's going to be the real problem, right? You don't want anybody else's problem to be bigger than yours. We have a law of unintended consequences that might play out very, 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 very soon. 
Prop 37 in California will require that when you buy your bo your box of uh, Kellogg's uh, Frosted Flakes or whatever, it says may contain GMOs on it until they make sure there's no GMOs there anymore. And I've actually heard from a lot of people that are very libertarian saying, you know, I'm kind of for this, but my libertarian friends aren't because they think it's government interference. It's not. The people have a right to know what's in the food they consume. I, I, I believe that. I believe there's a point for some regulation, basic regulation. And does anybody think we should take the ingredients list off a can of Coca-Cola? Or that, 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 that Coca-Cola should be able to put sugar as their main ingredient instead of high fructose corn syrup? Does anybody think that's a good And most people would say no. Well, then, shouldn't I also know that that Coke comes from GMO? And people say, well, you should let the market decide. The, the, the market can't decide right now. This is where we have a confluence of government and industry holding hands, where we should have a separation. The market cannot fix the problem because government and industry have created a situation where there is no choice and there is no knowledge. If you could walk down the store shelves and go, contains, does not contain, most people would buy the does not contain. Right? But we've gotten to a point where with mass-produced food, everything contains. And there's no notification. There's no listing. So should the government, should, should the industry be able to add an ingredient to your food without putting it in the ingredients list? Yes or no? And most people say, hell no! Okay, when you change corn to genetically modified corn with 20 different gene uh, strains uh, stacked into it, through transmugenic viruses, and you don't have to change the label? Come on. So this will probably pass. I hope it passes. But it may cause a economic catastrophe when it does. And I, I'm willing to deal with it because we have to fix it. And here's why. When that happens, Nabisco, Kellogg's, etc., cannot afford to make California-specific packaging. They can't do it. So all of a sudden, all, because the way the distribution system works, it doesn't work that way. So all of a sudden, all the packaging everywhere. And even if they did, as soon as California does it, you know, citizens in other states that have let this be shut down by Monsanto, Conagra, Bear, etc., are going to go, wait a minute, if they can do it, why can't we do it? Call it the GMO spring, right? The Arab spring, the GMO spring, right? So, um, as this, as this starts to play out, and people start walking into stores and going, where's the stuff without GMO? Store managers are going to have to source it. It's going to be very hard to do it first, isn't it? We may have like this one-year lag. And then what happens to the farmer who's been growing genetically modified corn, or worse, genetically modified soy, for 20 years, or 10 years now? And his field is literally saturated with all of these herbicides. And now he tries to grow something that's not GMO. That's going to have a hard time dealing with it. And you've got this land reclamation period where you might have extreme shortages in grain. And Monsanto and Conagra and Bear and all of these other scum companies will use it and say, see, see, and will the people have the guts to stand and say, fix the problem. We don't want to eat this shit anymore. So that's something that may be coming very, very soon. Um, the next thing I want to talk about today, if we're going to do the things that I'm about to give you, I'm about to give you a list of things that I think we can do at the individual and the state level to fix a lot of these problems and head them off. We have to come up with a new kind of a battle cry. And there's a belief among especially the libertarian philosophy, the right-wing philosophy, the militia is the whole of the people, right? And every citizen a soldier. 
But if you actually look at what the militia traditionally was, there were people too young to be in the militia, there were two people too old to be in the militia as, a, as an active militiaman. Uh, and women were not part of the militia. When Thomas Jefferson said they were the whole of the people, he meant it, but yet when it came to who's actually going to show up with a gun and fight, it wasn't the 32-year-old housewife with three kids, right? But yet there was a truth to it that it was every citizen. And what I'd like to see is our new battle cry. Is people that are for fixing the problems and solving the problems and standing through the problems and being self-sufficient and self-reliant and rebuilding and regaining what we've lost instead of every citizen a soldier. This is such a subtle change. But to me it's a very beautiful change. Every citizen a sentinel. See, everybody can be a sentinel. Not everybody can be a soldier. The most basic definition of a sentinel is a noun. Is a soldier or a guard whose job is to stand and keep watch. Now, not everybody can stand up and fight, but everybody can stand up and keep watch and, and work for some level of solution. I think as sentinels, we need to come up with individual things that are our main thing that we want to fight for and work on because not everybody can do everything. Not everybody can worry about alternative energy. Not everybody can worry about rebuilding soils. Not everybody can worry about establishing permaculture and, 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 and uh, rural agriculture and all these other things that I think need to be done. But everybody can pick one. And some people that are physically not even able to do much can stand watch and see where infringement is and point it out to their fellow sentinels. And I think this, when you say the militia is the whole of the people, this is the way that you make that happen. Not everybody's going to go out and arm themselves. Not even every able-bodied male between 18 and 45. But being called to stand guard for your family, your community, yourself, your republic... Now that is something I think people can get behind. And as we do that, and as I now hopefully have your mind turned toward that, even if you totally disagree with me about some other things that I've said today, if you'll let go of your perception bias, allow me to present you some actual solutions. Not high emotional lofty words as I've done at times in the past, but concrete mechanical let's do it solutions. One of the biggest things we need to do is rebuild our soils and reestablish natural ecosystems. We, we have to do that. We have to do that. You can go out to farms today, and if they haven't watered in the last you know day, grab the soil from the surface and crumble it in your hands, and it's literally dust. You can't stand drought with soil like that. You can't. And this is why the drought hurts so much. You've got mature standing crop, that's had a root system being developed for 90 days, it should be able to do better with the drought than what we've seen lately. And it used to happen. You know, Kunstler said the Ford tractor caused the, or was a huge contributing factor to the Dust Bowl. Some of you got really upset, some of you agreed. The answer is partly correct. What's created this environment where we can have a Dust Bowl is depletion of the soil, and what the tractor did was accelerate that. It doesn't matter, though. If you get, instead of one farmer on a 1,000 acres, a 100 farmers on a 1,000 acres, each with 10 plowing with oxen, if you mechanically do things the same way, 
break the soil every year, constantly turn it over, kill all life in it, and apply fertilizer, it doesn't matter how many men and ox or single men and tractors you use to do it, you get the same level of depletion. You can just do it faster with machinery. If you don't think this is a problem, I'd like you to do something for me. I'd like you to find a conventional farmed field. And I'd like you to actually do what I said. I'd like you to pick the soil up and I'd like you to feel it. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. Don't breathe in too deeply. God knows what you're inhaling. I want you to look for life in it. Look for a worm or a bug. Look for anything in the earth. If you have access to a microscope, take a little bit of it home and look at it under a microscope. Then I want you to find a forest. It doesn't even have to be a big, beautiful virgin forest. You'll find a wooded area at a city park that's pretty much left to itself. It's been that way at least 10 years. And go spread the leaf litter away and look at the soil there. Pick it up, feel it, smell it. Look it in under a microscope. It should tell you everything that you need to know. You talk about altering the climate, altering the stability of, our, of life on the planet... When you destroy millions of acres of this microscopic and small life form, everything from earthworms down to, to bacteria, protozoa, fungus, you're altering things at a level that we cannot comprehend as human beings. So we, we have to start out at least at the level of some state standing up and say, we're going to do this. I do think there's a place for government. And government can set the mission And then call on citizens to get it done. And then get the hell out of the way so they're not impeding it. And you'll see that many of the solutions I have, the biggest roadblock we have is the government in the way of it. And if it's not the government, it's the industry in the way of it. And if it's not the government or the industry, it's worse. It's the government and the industry. And we need to remove these roadblocks. But that's one of the things we've got to do is rebuild these, these soils. We need to stop bitching about cheap energy and start using it for long-term success. You know, we, I, I, every time I talk to like an eco-hippie at like a permaculture event, I just want to blow my brains out sometimes. I really do. I mean, sometimes I learn a lot from them and all, and sometimes they're a wealth of knowledge, but the, the crowd, we can't all have cars. Why not? We can't all, can't be, look at this, these tractors you're using in farms. We can't have tractors on our farms. Why not? There's oil, man. Well, listen, <laughs> I can look at the side of, let's say, a gentle sloping hill that is either somewhat regrown with some forest or completely de you know depleted pasture, anything like that. Let's say a hundred acre piece like that. And I can look at that and I can think about everything I've learned about natural ecosystems and modeling natural ecosystems into creating productive ecosystems that will feed people. And I can sit there And if I look at the direction of the wind, the solar aspect, maybe get a few readings on a few things, walk around it, take a basic sight level to it, not a real complicated one, just a little one you handle, see some contour lines, in about an hour, I can come up with a design that you could put into place that will drought-proof it, that will create ongoing food production that would last maybe a hundred years untouched, and thousands of years if managed, that would allow for annual and uh, perennial agriculture simultaneously existing, that would allow for the production of protein and carbohydrate. I can create that. And I can bring out a few pieces of equipment, and I can build that if I have the budget to do it in a week.
There'll be lakes. There'll be patties. There'll be ways to move water from one point to another. Uh, it, it'll be an amazing system. Or I can take, you know, 20 years to do with human labor. While cars drive down the road back and forth every freaking day and go, no, man, that's wrong. And I'm doing this with human labor because that's the way to do it. Which one really makes more sense? So one of the things we need to be doing is harnessing, and that's just one example of how, but creating designed ecosystems using the, we need to use this cheap energy. Coal and oil and natural gas is cheap and will stay cheap for longer than any of the peak people want you to believe. But what are we doing with it? What are we creating with it? I'm a huge proponent of wind energy, right? You put a windmill up, I don't care if it kills a bird or two. For every bird it kills, ten birds probably fly into the uh, buildings with mirrored glass. Okay, it kill. It makes noise. I don't care. So does a diesel generator. Okay, I mean wind energy is a huge, huge thing that we are doing a lot more than people realize. There is a future in wind energy, and we can use cheap energy to build the equipment to run the the wind energy systems, and those systems with some maintenance produce for decades with no additional inputs and we can turn that stuff up fast that's another way we can be using cheap energy to create long term systems and people say well they only last so long well, build them better research, develop when I asked Kunstler are there any technologies and I expected him to say well this sucks that sucks, but there's some things we could do and his answer was no we just can't do no. this defies logic friends the human mind is so innovative if unencumbered with bias, oppression, and restriction. If allowed to innovate, imagine what we could do. Remember what Jeff Lawton said when I brought up Monsanto and the GMOs? He said, wouldn't you love to have their research budget and their scientists and channel it into something positive? I mean, what if you created an environment for Monsanto through effective regulation? God forbid a libertarian say it, but yes. Where you, you can't do this shit anymore. But you can do something. Do you think they actually could create a positive solution if they were left no other alternative? Do you think they just go away? No. We also need to do things more at the local level and not just the locavore crap and all the local this and local that and all the feel-good freaking yuppie crap. No, we need to be serious about it. And the fundamental need that all human beings have is food. There isn't a person that lives for long without eating every day. So many of us eat too much. This country is probably the most overfed, undernourished nation on planet Earth today. We have more food than ever before and less nutrient than any time in history. And a lot of it is to do with the degradation of soil. A lot of it has to do with the mass-produced food. And we can't solve that problem on a centralized model. We have to decentralize food production. We have to put more and more agriculture in our cities and on the outskirts of our cities. That's a place Kunstler and I completely agree. But what's the biggest reason there's not more of it today? Is it because there's no demand? Is it because there's no market? Is it because it's not physically possible? Or is it because government and industry stands in the way? And you know the answer. You know the answer is government and industry standing in the way. And what we need to be doing, what some of our sentinels can do, is stand watch and stand guard over your community, your county, your city. And say, I don't give a shit what they do, two counties over. I don't have enough energy and resources to do that, but I can be a voice right here. And whatever's getting in the way from a guy going in and putting a one-acre urban farm right on the outside of downtown, let's get it the hell out of the way. Does he need money? 
Let's, let's, let's not ask the government to give them money. Let's go, who can do this? Who has the best idea? Let, let, let's, let's figure it out. Let's say at a community level, look, we're going to buy this acre and we're going to grant it to somebody. Not with the government. Don't want you. Stay away. Don't touch it. Just don't mess with it. Whatever you got to do to keep them out of it, keep them out of it. And whatever you got to do to get the, we want you got, the only thing you're going to town hall to do is, there's, this is a regulation that would prevent this from happening. Get rid of it. Get rid of it or we're getting rid of you. We're doing this. This is how you need to start talking to local officials. You need to get enough of your own people together, enough of your fellow Sentinels together, that when you go down there, they go, oh shit, they're serious. Is this really going to hurt anything? Not really. Okay. Well, and, you know, well, this is going to piss off some local chain store or something. Let them be pissed because I want my job. Right? That's, you have to start using the hammer on these people. And then you get a bunch of people, you know how much it takes to buy an acre of land like that? Twelve, fifteen thousand dollars sounds like a lot of money. Well, what if there's ten uh, people? I mean, a uh, hundred people. I'm sorry. What if there's a thousand people you can get on board with supporting that project? It's ten bucks a pop to create that in your community. Not a tax. It's voluntary. And to set that up and go, here it is. And, and you just give it to somebody because they show up and smile. No, you say come present. You, you put it together. Build the system. Bring us your plan. And then make it open source and say any community can use our plan. If you can improve it, please improve it and send it back to us. This is part, like part of the open source ecology movement on a much smaller level. Who, what are you going to grow? How are you going to grow it? How are you going to insure it? Where are you going to market it to? Who are you going to sell it to? And have local restaurants saying, well, this is what we want. Find the demand. Put matchmake. Put it together. That's one way we could do it. But we got to get the freaking government out of the way of that stuff. We got to put people into these local positions that that's one of the things they want to accomplish. And you know how you make them want to accomplish it? Make them realize that people want it. The politicians are the biggest bitches on planet Earth. They're, they can be pimped out to do anything as long as it keeps them in power. They really are. They're, they're just so easy to manipulate. Corporate interest uses money. And they use it at such a large scale that when you're trying to deal with somebody like a senator, a U.S. senator, a U.S. congressman, a president, a cabinet member, a, a, a federal judge, something like that, you can't get anywhere. But they don't have enough money and resources to go into all of these local governments and do the same thing. And the guy that's your mayor or your town council member can be put out of a job like that if you really want... One sentinel... One sentinel can get any one of those local ass clowns fired if they really want to do it. There's people out there, you don't even have a job. Make that your job. I'm going to get rid of these people. Until I find a job, that's going to be my job. I'm going to get rid of anybody that's in the way of progress for our community. Anybody that's blocking things that make common sense. you got to go and you got to be replaced with somebody that will remove the roadblocks. A hundred people like that in one small town. Think of how powerful that is. A small town, I'm talking 10,000 people, something like that. And I'm kind of bringing solutions in that you can participate at any level today. So now I want to bring it down to something that anybody can do, even if it's one particular item. We need to reestablish diversity in our seed lines. The reason that people like Monsanto can go in and tell a farmer, you got to buy this seed, is because the farmer doesn't have a lot of options anymore. If we rebuild the soils whether it's an acre at a time or a thousand acres at a time. And we're also rebuilding the seed lines. So that even if, if two farmers, uh, you know, ten counties apart, are growing seed from the same mother line, the same original heirloom, but those seeds have been grown in their county 
for 20 or 30 generations, you've got diversity. This is one of the things that people don't really understand about heirloom seed. People say the thing about heirloom seed is if you save the seed from one generation to the next, as long as you don't get cross-pollination, it breeds true. Sort of. That's the part people don't get. Sort of. There's variation. Some peppers are big. Some are a little bit smaller. Some turn red on one side. Some turn red all around. See, it's this very variation in these, these heirloom open-pollinated seeds that farmers sought to get rid of. And we did it. The consumer caused this, not the farmer. If I put three tomatoes in front of you, and they all are sort of the same tomato, but one is great big and beautifully red, and one is got a few cracks in it, about the same size, a little bit of yellowing and some cracks, but looks like something you know you wouldn't mind eating. It doesn't look bad. And another one of them is basically the right color, but it's a little bit oddly shaped. It's got kind of maybe like a little bulge out of one side of it and all, and maybe it's got a crack in it. It doesn't have the yellowing, but it's, it's just shaped weird. And you set that in front, those three tomatoes in front of the average consumer in America today, and you say you can have any one of those for free. They're going to reach in and take the one that looks perfectly formed. So farmers said, well, crap, if that's more marketable, that's what I want to grow. So in comes the hybrid. And the hybrid, while the seed won't breed true, the uniformity is much greater. So every fruit looks the same. Every vegetable looks the same. This is market repeatability. And we stopped valuing that diversity and the flavor, the texture, and the taste. And we started wanting the produce shop. Everything looks the same. You know, because you see people standing there picking tomatoes even today. They look at them. Oh, that one's got a little, you know. And, and these, these, you know, other than if it's overripe or something like that, these variances mean nothing in the way that they're going to taste. I guarantee you, I can take the two of them, cut them up, and put them side by side. And you eat a spoonful of both. You'll never tell me the difference. Yet we make a choice that way. Well, that requires consumer enlightenment, doesn't education. But we need to rebuild these seed lines. And that's the beauty of that is you can pick one plant, one variety. In your backyard, even if you have a very small backyard, and you can begin to work with that variety and select specific traits for your region. And we can rebuild that. And you want to talk about something that's an industry waiting to happen. How can a person with a half-acre backyard really make a, a, a business in agriculture? It's really tough. Maybe if you're growing plants in a greenhouse and selling the started plants and things like that, you can do okay. But it, it, it's tough to take it to like a real production level with that small piece of land. But what if you had a half-acre backyard and you put aside a quarter of it, you know, so maybe a tenth of an acre, 12, 1.12 acres, And you said, you know what I'm going to do? On that, I'm going to grow nothing but corn. I'm going to pick one variety of corn. And I'm going to plant it earlier than everybody says it's supposed to plant. And half of it's going to die. Half of it's not going to sprout. I'm going to end up with 20% of my yield the first year. But I'm not going to eat one kernel of that corn. And I'm going to take every kernel that makes it and put it into my seed stock for next year. And I'm going to do the same thing again. And I'm going to do the same thing. And I'm going to do that for five years if it takes it until the majority of that corn grows and reaches maturity starting as early as possible. And you get to a point where you can grow that much corn every year. And then you start selling that corn to home gardeners and small farmers as seed stock. Is that an industry waiting to happen? And 
yeah, well, when you sell it, will somebody else start competing with you? Fine, you don't care. If you know how to market, you know how to sell, and you're the original source of that particular variety. And instead of being able to patent the genetics of a seed, what we should be able to do is patent the name. If you're Joe Blow and you come up with Joe Blue's early blue corn, Joe Blow's early blue corn, then no one else should be able to call it that. That I'm okay with. But if somebody wants to take your corn and move it a state over and do another trial with it and develop another trait in it and call it Tom Frank's super duper blue corn that comes up early and has big ears, I don't care. That's a life form. We shouldn't be patenting it. But that's something that we can all work on. We can all start developing unique seed stocks and reestablish the diversity. And people go, look how much diversity we've lost. You know, if, if all the seed varieties in 1900 were represented by a dollar bill, right now we have about three cents left. And that seems like, how do you fix that? Well, let me ask you, where did the diversity come from in the first place? We're so far ahead of our ancestors with what we have saved to reestablish that diversity because they started with wild plants that produced almost nothing. The 3% we have left is a huge resource to be harnessed and, and gone forward with. We also need to get everything we can out of the way that keeps livestock out of small farms, small urban farms, and things like that, and reestablish livestock as part of the family farm, part of the small farm, part of the mid-sized farm, part of even the large farm. And part of this is because animals can do what humans cannot. You cannot eat grass. You cannot eat... Uh, high-fiber uh, uh, vegetation and convert it into something useful. We're, human beings aren't designed to do that. And if we want to remineralize our soils, animals are the way to get that done. We can put minerals into the feed of our animals. And those animals can process those minerals in a way that we can't, in a way that, they, that, that makes them bioavailable. And then we can put the waste materials back through over and over again and begin the cycle that was natural at one time with man taking um, a hand and guiding it along toward a reparative state. And we cannot do it. We cannot do it without reintegration of, of livestock. Uh, that's chickens in backyards. That's making allowances so the little farms in these urban agricultural zones can have little pieces of pasture with a few goats. So that they're creating a holistic system rather than just a, a one-off system. It does no good for an a, a urban farm to be dependent on inputs that come from somewhere else. They should be able to create as many of their own inputs as possible. And yeah, we can do things with composting and all, but nothing takes the place of animals. And we need meat and protein products such as dairy and eggs and things like that as part of our diet. There's a huge demand for it. And if we want it to work then that's what we need to do. We need to make it part of things again. So we need to remove those roadblocks. Some sentinels somewhere need to take up that cause. Um, we also need to encourage rather than block architectural innovation. We build houses the same damn way everywhere we go. Uh, I remember a buddy of mine that wasn't very smart, but he was smart enough uh, to recognize this. He said, you know what? All of these neighborhoods remind me of Mr. Rogers. And I remember saying to him, hey, Mike, what do you mean? And he said, look, they're all the same houses. There's like four or five houses in this whole neighborhood. And the only thing that changes is the color of the siding, the color of the roofing, and which side the garage is on. And it's just like a repeat over and over. You pick your model. You, and, you know, he was right. And it's, it's much bigger of a problem that because we build all the houses the same from the code standpoint and things like that. 
And that means there's no innovation. There hasn't been an innovation in housing, a mainstream innovation in housing for probably 50, 60 years or more. And the last one we had moved us into the suburban model. It wasn't really an innovation. It was a, it was a de-innovation. We, we backed up. We, as soon as we could plug into a grid for sewer, uh, plug into a grid for water, plug into a grid for electricity, and, and stick one of uh, Dr. York's magic boxes on it to heat it or to cool it and, and, and st stick in a, a central heating system to, to heat it up, we forgot about everything that was really important. Hell, energy's cheap now. But energy's not cheap, is it? I mean, ask the average suburban person that lives in either a, a, a warm climate in summer or a cold climate in winter what they're spending on their electric bill in those months. It's huge. And every time someone tries to fix it, people get in the way. The guy that really like pioneered the Earthship design lost his architectural license because he was moving too fast and breaking rules. And when he lost, there's a great interview out with him. He said, I lost my architectural license. It was the best thing that ever happened. And they said, why? He said, because as an architect, I have rules I have to follow. Now I'm not an architect anymore. Now I'm just a guy doing stuff. So as long as I can find a place where nobody bothers me, I'm not doing it as an architect anymore, and no one can tell me what to do. Why do we have to make this show? Why can't we have our best architects innovating housing? Why can't we be doing things with earth contact housing? The earth is the same temperature a few feet below the ground all the time everywhere you go. It just so happens to be a temperature that humans are relatively comfortable at. Geothermal energy is great, but how about just geocentric living conditions? you got this planet, this huge massive thermal mass that maintains a temperature of about 68 degrees. We can't all have our homes at 72 degrees all year round. That's bad for the polar bears. My ass, we can all have our houses damn near 68 degrees all year round everywhere. If we would get out of our own way. You know, one of the big problems with earthship construction, it's not just tires that make, you can make an earthship out of any type of construction. Right? It doesn't have to be tires. But one of the big hangups is that an earthship deals with its own sewage. And the government doesn't like that. They want you tying into a septic system, or they want you, to, you know, they, you can't treat your sewage inside your home. Oh my god, that's, well, composting toilet, well, that's different. It's electric, and it, you know, some of these, they have these electric composting toilets now, and as long as some places that's okay, and some it's, it's just stupid. Where you have an earth ship, where a person takes a shower, the water is used for, for, you know, creates basically gray water. That water is then used to flush sewage. That water is then pushed through an, an aerobic septic, system that utilizes biomass to clean it up. It further trickles down to where once it's cleaned, it can actually irrigate plants that are productive plants. And by the time the water leaves, it's been used four or five times, and there's almost nothing, there's, there's, there's almost nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's much cleaner than the water we send uh, back out of our treatment centers. But we can't do that. Because, gee, what would happen if everybody did that? Well, maybe we'd fix these problems. But, see, government gets in the way. Industry gets in the way. Do you think the people that build septic systems, conventional septic systems, want this innovation? Do you think the people that work for the water treatment facilities all around the world want this solution? Do you think the companies that install the infrastructure so these want these innovations? See, innovation requires death of existing industry. This is what no one wants to say because that's what's holding us back. You have to kill old industry to create new industry. It's just like the earth. You want to build topsoil, something got to die. But something has to be reborn in its place. The problem with agriculture is we kill, we till and we kill, 
but we don't regenerate, right? So when you take virgin field and you till it, you get amazing fertility as all the little microorganisms die, right? But when they, they keep dying, plow after plow after plow, with no, re, no new inputs of organic matter to create a next generation, eventually we deplete it. Well, if you kill an industry without replacing it, you end up in the same vacuum. And in nature abhors a vacuum, so do human beings. And that's why we'll hold on to these archaic technologies. Because somebody wants to worry about... Instead of the very companies that are deploying these technologies being the innovators. And there is a place for government. And I think that's one of the places government can assist us to say, you know, this technology is pretty much run its course, guys. You've got to come up with something new. And we're gonna, we're gonna, instead of getting in the way of a guy building a, a, a urban farm, let's regulate at the high level where it's necessary, where the companies are so large they can bully people around. But no, because they're in bed together. So we need thousands, millions of sentinels on that watch. Remember, like I said with the GMOs, it's not that they want the market to act. They're terrified of the market. Monsanto is scared of nothing more than they are the free market at work. If you give people the ability to know what's being done, the free market will work like that. To have a free market, to have a stable playing field, there has to be some basic rules. Because you imagine what football would be like if there were no rules. You don't only have so many guys on the field at one time. What if we got rid of that rule? Whoever could afford the most players would win every game. Right? Because you just have more, you just outman the other guy. What if you, what if you didn't have to catch the ball? What if you could throw the ball and hit the ground? Whoever picked it up could run away with it. What if you didn't even have to throw the ball? What if you were tackled, but if, if while you were tackled, you could just shove the ball to somebody else and they could run away with it? Eventually, you, you just by ridiculousness, you would ruin the game. You would make it a game that doesn't have any competitive spirit anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything. Nobody enjoys watching it. That's why rules exist. You can't have a level playing field without some rules. The problem is the government puts the most onerous regulation on the people in least need of it. And they give the most free reign to the people that most need to be regulated. Look, if you're running a company today in this country, the basic laws... Like, you know, not burning down somebody else's house or, you know, not having a business that's called, you know, Jack's Punch in the Face. I talked about this a long time ago. Like, if I set up a business that was called Jack's Punch in the Face, right, and you had somebody you wanted punched in the face, you could just go online with PayPal and pay me. And I have one of my big goons. Oh, you got a, you got a guy in Seattle? I Just email my goon in Seattle. And then, like, he'll go to their office, knock on the door, and open the door and <laughs> punch him in the face for you, right? That might be a very popular service, but it's not legal, Because it's assault, right? But if your business is under a million dollars a year, you don't need a lot of regulation to tell you how to run it. And you don't need a lot of people in your way. But if your business is doing a billion dollars a year, the amount of control that gives you calls for some level of regulation. These oil companies, you want you want you want a sin of an oil company. Everybody, all these AGW polar bear huggers, and go hug a polar bear and see how that works out for you, by the way. Let me know if you still have your head the next day. Okay, but all these polar bear huggers are worried about the oil companies who you know, refund the oil and people burn in their cars and they make CO2. <sighs> I just made CO2. <sighs> I just made CO2 again. How about this? Shell oil company in Nigeria, biggest one there. All of them are there. There's there's dozens of oil companies in, in Nigeria, multinationals, not just U.S. ones. Shell's the biggest one. They have these fields where they're extracting oil. 
And they don't have all the good little environmental regulations over there like we do here. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. Like we shouldn't, of course we should have, if we're going to pump something out of the ground that can be toxic, we need some level of rule and regulation to how it's done so it doesn't damage the ecosystem. All you people think I'm just like, let's, let's let it go. It'll be all right. Rape the planet. No. But over there, they are allowed to rape the planet. So when they start drilling the oil wells, all of a sudden, you know, starts coming out of the ground, natural gas. Massive, massive amounts of natural gas. There's enough natural gas coming out of the ground in Nigeria right now, just Nigeria, to provide 100% of the current electrical needs of the entire continent of Africa as it sits today. But Jack, if we burn it, it'll contribute to global warming. Well, guess what, buddy? They're burning it anyway. You're lucky they're burning it because if they weren't burning it, and it was just venting, and you had the methane released, then you would have a much bigger problem. But how much of it is not being burnt? Because it's you, go, you walk, I saw this on Russia Today. They show these fields, you walk, and like it's all sludge and nasty, as bad as it gets environmentally, and there's this vent. There's this huge flame, just roaring. Because the, the natural gas is not worth enough money to make it worth harvesting, so they're burning it off. They, oh, we're going to run out of natural gas, but they're burning it. For nothing. Instead of capping it and using it. We need to address that. That is something that, that anybody... And if you think that's okay, something's deeply wrong with you. You, you. Really, something's wrong with you. Now, can the United States government tell Shell Oil what to do with itself in Nigeria? No, but they could say, you know what, if you want all these subsidies and preferential treatment and tax breaks and stuff like that, yeah, you're going you're gonna to have to stop doing that. You Exxon, YouTube, BP, you want to import here? Yeah, you, you all we're gonna look at what you guys are doing. And if you're like just burning gas wide open and creating sludge fields anywhere in the world, we're gonna make it easier for the people that aren't doing it to do business with us than we are you. Well that could drive up oil prices. No, it won't. Not significantly, because when you take away their biggest place to sell their shit, they will stop doing it. This practice does not have to go on. It doesn't happen over here that way. Why? Because they're not allowed to. They can adapt to that. It's the Nigerian government that allows it. And we do not need to be telling Nigeria what to do with itself. But we could say things like, you know all that foreign aid you guys get? <laughs> oh, we'd like you to stop doing that if you want our foreign aid. Now, I just think we shouldn't be giving foreign aid to anybody. But if we're going to do, if you're, see, this is part of what you have to do to be a realist. You know, I might say, like, we should do this with our subsidies. And people go, Jack, we shouldn't even have subsidies. Absolutely. Completely agree. We should get rid of them all. But as long as they're there, shouldn't we use them to craft something functional instead of something dysfunctional? If we're going to have farm subsidies, shouldn't they go to farmers that are rebuilding soils instead of farmers destroying soils? Well, we shouldn't have them at all. I, I understand. I under, just stop. Just think. We do. No matter how many sentinels we put on the line, we're not getting rid of it tomorrow. So can't we channel it? Walmart sucks. Yes, it does. But isn't it better that we use the apparatus of Walmart to demand more American goods, more local produce, more organic, more naturally produced, and use that apparatus since it ain't going to go away? And that's what we have to start doing as realists. We have to start realizing we make these subtle turns and adjustments 
And we start as locally as we can with them because it's where it's easier to get things done. Another thing that we need to be doing is developing alternative energy, and we need to start doing it in a very decentralized model. And I do think there's a role for government here, but it ain't the federal government. The federal government put out a mandate, right? 20% of all energy produced from wind or 10% of all energy. I don't remember which one it is, and that's working. And it's, it's doing what it's supposed to do, and I'm actually okay with it. I really am. But that's enough. That's enough. The market has to speak from here. But what's the stop? Sheboyganville, Iowa, where they have lots of wind. Little town. It doesn't exist. I made it up. But that's why I don't want it to be anybody's backyard. I want it to be you know any random town that it could be anywhere where there's wind. From saying, you know what we're going to do? And this has happened places, but it needs to happen more and at a higher level. What we're going to do is we're going to take a, a segment of the tax dole this year. And instead of hiring somebody to freaking pick up dog poop or something with it, and maybe expanding some program that's already failing, we're going to actually get rid of a couple of things that aren't really necessary. And we're going to stop some expansion of some things, that, and we're going to create this, this little seed project base here. And we're going to invest in the biggest windmill that'll buy us. And we're going to take that energy and we're going to provide it to our town. And if there's a surplus, we're going to sell it back to the grid. And if there's not a surplus, we're going to use it to reduce the cost of energy in our town. And if it works, we're going to do one. We're going to do a test. We're going to see if it works. And if it works, then we're going to do another one. And if that works, then we're going to do another one. And if we can really drive down the energy cost to doing business in Sheboyganville at half the energy cost of doing business in one county over, we're going to market that. And we're to say, if your company wants to be green and wants to cost advantage, come here. Contribute to our tax base by being part of the community and gain from what we've built. And we need to be doing that with any energy source that works everywhere that it works, and that is a local government project. That's a county and downsize thing. And that's not about just somebody throwing solar panels on the roof now. Now it's about harnessing this. The government is going to take your money in taxes. I know that the libertarian purists says there shouldn't even be a government. I know that the minarchist like me says it should be a very tiny government that only takes a little bit. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. No, no, no. We're not going to have a revolution in America like in James Rawls' book and then the constitutionalists and libertarians are going to take over. No. Because the average person doesn't want it. And this is a republic, but it's also a democratically elected republic, and the majority is going to have a significant amount of say-so, and the majority doesn't want what you and I want. So we have to work with what's possible. And we can do that. There's no reason we can't do what I just said. None. The only thing that gets in the way is somebody worried about a duck flying into it or something like that. The reality is that wind is the cleanest energy source that we know of that's viable that's completely viable today. And when people say, well, the wind doesn't always blow, let me tell you a little thing about that. Every time we add a windmill to the totality of the system, we mitigate that fact. The wind doesn't always blow, but the wind always blows somewhere. The more windmills that we have, the more places they're tied into the grid, the more differential that we have on top of the ridge, at the bottom of the ridge, on the left side, on the right side, Someone somewhere's generating, and we can get a, a mean average of what we can expect from wind every month of the year. We can know what we can expect from there. What about when the wind's blowing like crazy everywhere? There's too much energy. Disengage the clutch, fool. That's not a problem. Right? So there's a huge, 
huge alternative energy source wanting to happen there. But it has to happen at a decentralized level. It has to happen with industry. It has to happen with small town, small government. It has to happen everywhere. And when somebody proves it out, it'll get done elsewhere. When Sheboyganville actually has like 20 good-sized, middle-sized company employers, people that are employing like 20, 30, 40, 50 people, move in and develop that economy, you don't think you know West Sheboyganville is going to go, hey, maybe we should put a couple of these uh, windmills in ourselves. Well, what about the city that doesn't have the wind generation capability? Wham! Right? That's like saying, well, what about the state that doesn't have a gold mine operation? They don't have any gold. you, you got to work with what you have. Maybe they have lots of sun. Maybe they actually can figure out how to make solar viable. Maybe if we actually tried to do it, we could. Maybe if we didn't worry about the fact that we might cast a shadow in the desert with the panel and interfere with a mouse in Nancy Pelosi's district, maybe we would be able to actually put in solar farms. Maybe there's ways to actually do this. I don't know. I have big doubts about solar. Not as pessimistic as Steve Harris, but we got to try, right? What we need out of a solar panel, at this point, it's not so much that we need greater efficiency or lower costs. We need longer life cycles. If I was in the business of making solar panels today, I would be trying to take the life expectancy of my panel from 20 years to 50 years. And then I've got something. And when I hit 50, I'd be looking for 100. And he said, well, you're putting yourself out of business. No, they're going to need maintenance. They're going to need upkeep. And you know what? By the time that we built enough of them to fill the demand, I'm going to be dead and so are my kids. So no. No, I'm not going to worry about that. Do you think when they made a good pair of jeans in you know, 1900 that was going to last a guy if he wore it every day for a year, they would still be on his ass at the end of the year? The guy making the jeans was worried he was going to have market saturation problems? No. And he thought, maybe I'll make some shirts, too, you know? I'm just saying, we got to start thinking. Instead of limiting our thinking, expanding our thinking. Um, I think we need to start turning garbage into waste. Uh, I know a company, AdBongo, really trying to do this. They have a solution. They can go into a major metropolitan area, you know, Dallas, Austin, Atlanta, Jacksonville, something that size, and say, just give us some of your garbage. And when you give us garbage, we'll give you energy and we'll give you jobs. And we don't even need money. And they're having so much trouble getting it done. And do you know why they're having trouble getting it done? The other companies that own the trucks that take the garbage to the landfill, they don't want it to happen, and they're connected at the local level with the politicians. My buddy uh, John Bush, from that place, has told me that he has actually had conversations with waste disposable uh, owners of the waste disposal companies that sound like you're talking to the mob. We don't want you here, you're not going to be here, and if you come here, there's going to be trouble. We need to fix that shit, right? We need to have enough citizens in one city go, we're going to do this. Because that garbage produces a lot of biogas. And some of it produces some of the best compost you'll ever see. And where do the jobs come from? Just from the energy? No, no. This system that these people have is the integration of business percolators directly into the system. And that's just one example. But there's so much stuff that we're throwing away that could be converted into energy. And it's wasteful. And we only waste what we have in surplus. And we need to start realizing it's not really a surplus. It's a temporary surplus. Even if we have 70 years of oil at current usage without going into severe decline, and I don't even believe that. 
Even if we have 150 years of natural gas, same thing. Even if we have 200 years of coal, same thing. And we could run that way for 200 years from now. Who are we to completely deplete those resources and ignore the needs of our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren? What gives us the right to do that without using it wisely? You want to burn oil? Fine, as long as you, What are you burning it to do? Are you burning it to do something with it that's going to create a system that will outlast oil itself? That's what we need to be doing right now. We do need to crack down on companies doing harm. We really do. And it's the big companies doing the most harm that have the least regulation. They're running the regulators. I'm not going to go into that one because I'm already really long, and this is going to be a long show today. I've already given you an example with Shell Oil, Monsanto. Everybody should know. You guys should already know that Monsanto works this way. You get a job for Monsanto working at the upper levels, right? Then you get a job working for the United States Department of Agriculture, and then you go back to Monsanto, and then you go back to the USDA, and then you go back to Monsanto. It's a revolving door. They're writing their own regulations. And, and so are the oil companies, so are the banking companies, right? It's food, it's energy, and finance. Those three sectors at the top level The, the industry has more control than the government. And that, and, and people go, well, Jack, I thought you're a libertarian. I am. I am. But there's a point where a libertarian is supposed to believe this. Do whatever you want until you harm another person. When you start running a multi-billion dollar, hundreds of billions of dollar industry, and you're doing harm to other people, that's where the problem comes in. And these people are doing harm. And anybody says they're not, it's just not open to reality. And it's not about CO2. It's about all these other things I've been talking about today. And why CO2? I, I, God, I don't want to do this, but I gotta, you gotta get this. It's the great divider. They don't want 300 million sentinels in the United States. They want 300 million people trying to fight with each other instead of paying attention to what they're doing. And those are your three sectors. Finance, energy, food. They want to control those because if you control those, you control the planet. I, I'm saying even if you got a, a business doing 10, 20 million dollars a year, you don't need a lot of regulation. You really don't. When you start going into the billions, when you start employing more people that live in the average county, when you start doing business in 40 or 50 countries, when you start having your own police force like Monsanto does, they can go out and take property off of somebody else's farm to test it for their genes and enforce their patents and find people outside of the court system. I'm sorry, that is too far. So when you say, well, when do we need to bring regulation in? I don't know exactly how far down the chain we need to come, but that's way past it right there. So we do need to put the brakes on these companies doing harm. We also need to repair and improve the energy grid. There's, there's no doubt about that. If we're going to really tie in more solar, more wind, more geothermal, more God knows what we're going to come up with next. And, and this belief that like technology can't fix problems is bullshit. Technology has been fixing problems since before the Clovis point. If you don't know what a Clovis point is, look it up. I don't have time to go into that history lesson with you today. Technology has always been the solution to problems. It's the abuse of technology that creates more problems, though. So, yeah, there's, there's ways that we can do more with what we have. There's tidal energy that can be created. We can make better use of hydroelectric energy. We can make better use of personal energy production. And there are people that will choose to use so little energy that they'll actually produce more than they need, and they should be able to feed that back to the grid, and they should be able to profit from it. I mean, I, I look at it this way. 
I'm not living in central Texas without an air conditioner. If you want to, go ahead. And if you're willing to do it, and you're willing to rig up all kinds of stuff to produce your own energy, and then because you're doing it without air conditioning, you have a surplus, and you want to sell it back to the market, I think nothing should stand in your way. I think you should be duly compensated for your innovation, your investment, and your sacrifice. And I believe that about all things. But instead we have these places where all of this stuff is being blocked. And But if we're going to make it work, the grid has to be updated and improved. And it ain't with a smart meter on every house. It isn't with controlling the individual, it's the, the infrastructure and the network. And by the way, those of you that keep emailing me go, how do I keep them from putting a smart meter on my house? You don't, you're getting one tough shit, live with it. I don't like it any more than you do, but you know what? If that's your biggest problem you have to deal with in the next 10 years, you're going to be okay. That's not your problem. All of these ass clowns destroying everything that's natural in the world, destroying your knowledge and your skills, teaching our children revisionist history, making people helpless, making people dependent on the state, making people obese. There's your problem, not a freaking smart meter. Uh, the next thing I think we need to do, corporations need to get out of the business of pure academic research. I don't want any corporation funding any research as long as there's any string attached to it. If Monsanto really believes that their money is suited in our educational system, our universities and stuff like that, to furthering the, 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 the good of all through agricultural innovation, let them give their money anonymously. They can give it with no strings. That's the, that's that's the key. You want to? I don't want to stop private industry from investing in research. I want to stop private industry from controlling the results of research. So if you want to give a million dollars to Dartmouth or whatever, I don't care. I don't care. Do it, but don't tell them what you want them to do with it. Other than this is for agriculture. That, that should be the limit, because these institutions are where our minds are being shaped by our innovators into the future, and you can't shape innovation in a young mind with the restrictive beliefs of an older mind. They have to be looking for the next thing, not married to the last thing. People talk about separation of church and state. Let me tell you what I want. I want separation of industry and government. I want them out of each other's back pocket. I want them to stop playing grab ass. I want it, I want it completely separated. You want to donate to a candidate? Go ahead. That's it. Go on your merry way. You know, if you work for a major corporation and you go into government service, you should have a time commitment in government service. You want to quit your job, fine, but you don't go back to private industry unless you're fired. How about that? This revolving door shit between the two industries? No. When government says our role is to do this, and we look at it as a people, and even if I don't agree with it, but as a majority we agree, and it doesn't get deemed unconstitutional by a court that actually would follow the Constitution as being a role of government, then government should do it without industry. Government should do it as government. right? Now, there's a place where there's kind of a handoff. Building roads, bridges, and stuff like that. I completely believe that it's one of government's legitimate roles to build infrastructure in a country. Promote general welfare. That's commerce, that's exchange of goods and services, that's infrastructure. I'm all about it. But then the government should figure out how to fund the project, where they want the road to go, bid it out, and do it. And in most instances, that's sort of how it happens. There's a lot of, 
There's a lot of backdoor bullshit there. Minority rights on contracts and companies that really aren't the best suited to do the job, getting the job, or somebody, you know, giving a big contribution to the town councilman and all of a sudden he gets the contract and we need to clean that up. But that basic concept I'm okay with. But when government and industry start functioning as a, as a combined unit, like the Federal Reserve, a quasi-government, quasi-private fascist entity, I have a real problem. Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, same thing. They're government, but they're not. Can't let them fail because they're a department of government. They can lose, but they can't lose because, I mean, no. This doesn't work. In a true society built on risk-reward relationships, a company should be free to profit All, all it wants as long as it doesn't harm another individual. Seriously, I have no problem with your profit. But you should not then expect society to take your loss. So if you fail, you fail. You don't get bailed out. And if we ran society that way, that would lead to innovation. You don't innovate when somebody constantly resuscitates you on, a, on death's table. It just doesn't happen. Um, so I want that separation. Now, Charles, uh, Charles, I don't know where I got that. James, James, uh, James Kunstler, um, stated that he thinks we need to, to, to revitalize the rail system. I'm okay with rail, but rail, I mean, here's the problem. Like, if you look at Amtrak, I can buy a ticket in Philadelphia and like two days later get to Dallas, Texas. Which means nobody's gonna do that, but I can buy the ticket for next to nothing, which means somebody's gonna do that. Now, why can I buy the ticket for next to nothing? Because government subsidizes Amtrak. Now, if Amtrak had to operate at a profit or fall on its ass, let me tell you what would happen. Amtrak would still have a train, I firmly believe, that's going from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. It might cost a little bit more to get on there, but they would run that train, and they would make money on it. You know why? Lots of people go from Philadelphia to D.C., and it's a reasonable distance to travel by rail. It really is. Um, it's not reasonable to travel from Philadelphia to Chicago. And then get on a train and go to Dallas. It's not reasonable. Not in a day and age with airplanes. And no, the airlines aren't all going to dry up and blow away. There might be less of them. It might be more expensive to fly. People might fly less. But there's going to be airplanes that people are going to fly. The market will adapt to the change in demand like it always has. But if you want to build rail systems because you want to save polar bears or because it makes sense, either one I'm okay with. But then let's do it intelligently. You look at something like Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas has this DART system, Dallas Area Rapid Transit. They have these trains. They don't even have anybody to make sure you pay to get on one. You're supposed to pay on the honor system, and uh, frankly, a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't. So that already hurts the revenue side of things. But if you want to get on a train in Plano and go to Dallas, you can do that. But most people that live in Plano don't work in Dallas. Plano's kind of an upper-income area, and the people that, that work in Dallas out of Plano, generally, you know, most of them don't take the train. A few of them do. But where is there a demand in Dallas? I'm just using Dallas. There's any city we could use to do this with because I know the area. And I, you know, what is the, what would be a great rail system in Dallas Fort Worth that people would use? Well, the first thing I would do is probably build a train that ran from Dallas Fort Worth Airport to downtown Dallas. And while I was there, I might as well extend that over to Love Field so that people could then use the two airports in conjunction for connecting flights. Okay? And then I would probably say, you know what? It would be a good idea if you could get from Dallas to Fort Worth. 
And I'd build a rail that went from Dallas to Fort Worth, and I would go right through the middle of Arlington where Six Flags and the stadiums and all of that are because people freaking go there. And then you might as well complete that rail line up to the airport. So from downtown Dallas or Fort Worth, you can get to the airport. So that business people coming into my city to do business can rely on that transportation system to get there. And then you start building your outlying lines. But no, they build all the outlying lines where nobody goes. And without these actual critical links to where commerce comes in and out of your city, you have a system that doesn't work very well. I hate to give D.C. credit for anything, but compare that to the D.C. Metro. When I worked that market, and I lived up in Allentown, I had a couple choices. I could fly from Allentown to Philadelphia, which was just stupid. Get on a plane to Philadelphia and go down to D.C., which would take longer than it was worth for all of that crap. I could drive to, D to Philadelphia and fly out, and you spent more time waiting for the plane to take off than you did in the air. I could drive all the way to D.C., which was a significant drive and took up a lot of my time. I could drive down to D.C., park at the Amtrak station, get on the train, an hour and 45 minutes, I'm right down in the middle of, of Washington, D.C. And I've got the metro system there. And any client that I wanted to see, any sales rep that I wanted to pick me up in their car, I could get to a place that was easy for them. I could spend my whole time down there traveling around to every place I needed to go because the lines actually connected from places where people wanted live to where people wanted to go. And it worked. So you can make rail part of the equation. But it has to be short distance, convenience based. The, the way to make rail work for, for passengers is to look at distances that are a bit further than people want to drive and a bit too close for people to want to actually fly and then look at that area and say, let's take this from places people actually go frequently. Now you can make it work. Without that, you got nothing. Freight rail could definitely be rebuilt, but I don't think it's as critical as, as maybe our guests last week made it out to be. Um, I, I think really what we need to do, though, I said last week, we need to create thousands and thousands of laboratories of innovation. You, you hear politicians at the federal level spin this all the time. We need 50 laboratories of innovation. Why 50? Just because there's 50 states. That, that's just what the government does. The government can't do half of what the people can. Seriously, they can't. In fact, all the things the government does are funded by provided for and, and done off the sweat, uh, sweat of the brow and the, and the pain in the back by people. Government is just a conduit that, that funnels those things and then pats itself on the back and says, look what we did. We invented the Internet. We created the highway system. No, you didn't invent the Internet. Scientists did, right? And you didn't make the Internet viable. Entrepreneurs did. And you didn't build the highway system, hard-working, blue-collar men that busted their ass and worked 80 hours a week and were happy for the opportunity did. And no, you didn't design it. Engineers that went to school and learned how to do it did. And no, you didn't pay for their education on the GI Bill. They paid for it with their sweat, blood, and tears and their buddies that didn't come home. You didn't do it. They did it. And that's what government needs to understand. But if we want to take control back, we need to get that too. And understand, well, if, the, if our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers can do that, we don't get a freaking pass. We can't blame somebody else. We have to do it. So we need thousands of laboratories of innovation. We need innovation laboratories like the one guy with a tenth of an acre of Indian blue corn, making it grow earlier and earlier and earlier in the year to beat the corn borer and developing that single line as a laboratory of innovation. We need that little town that's out there putting those windmills in and saying, does it work? And if it doesn't work, instead of the United States people coughing up 90 freaking million dollars or whatever it is to Solyndra to go bankrupt 
It's one little town with one failed experiment. We go, that didn't work. Why did it fail? That doesn't mean we shit can. It means the editor in town goes, tell us everything you did and where it went wrong. How would you have done it? And then let's innovate that. And we need thousands of those laboratories at the city, the individual level, the county level, the state level. Yes, all of them. We need to encourage that. And the biggest thing in the way, again, is government blocking it. And it's the hardest thing for the liberal to get their head around. And, and the arrogant conservative believes that we should just take the gloves off. With, without an understanding that it's the little guy being oppressed and the big guy calling the shots. And the, the guy that the, the, the liberal is really afraid of, if you deregulate, is the guy that's already not regulated. It's the guy that's already not ready because he's writing the regulation. He's using the regulation to suppress innovation and to suppress competition. And the conservative knows inherently all this talk of regulation isn't going to do anything but suppress the small entrepreneur. And he's right, but neither of them can see which the whole nail. They're one's looking at the point and one's looking at the head. They don't want you talking to each other. You start creating laboratories of innovation all across the country, you're going to talk to each other. And son of a gun, you might realize that it's not a point or a head, it's a spike. And you might actually use it to build something with. Got it? Divide and conquer. It's not just for armies. The greatest control of your government is to divide you and conquer you. To put you in the liberal basket, the conservative basket, the atheist and the, the, the conservative Christian, the black and the white, the Mexican and the Arab. Whatever way they can divide you, they will. But not if you're actually seeking solutions instead of worrying about why somebody else isn't doing things your way. We do that through innovation. And we need to develop a culture of leadership and self-sufficiency. We need to value hard work. Not hard work like, I'm in my book and I'm learning to be an engineer. That's great if that's you. But we talk shit about the guy using a shovel. We need to look at the guy using a shovel on the side of the road and go, thank God that man has the work ethic to do that because somebody has to do it. We need to value that. We need not have to tell our children, you don't want to be him. Maybe your kid does want to be him. Maybe that shovel leads to running a piece of equipment. Maybe running that piece of equipment leads to running a freaking construction company. You want to be a builder of houses? Don't get a degree in architecture. Go get a part-time job framing. You'll learn more in a week than you will in a year. We need to value the concepts of hard work. Physical hard work again. Not just emotional or academic hard work. Actually physically busting your ass. Having that mean something again. Leadership. When someone stands up and says, I am going to take control of this situation, we don't need to tell them they're arrogant. We need to hear what they have to say. Maybe they have a good idea. We don't need all 24 kids in the classroom sitting there quietly when one of them tells the teacher, you're wrong. Teacher, be challenged and challenge the student back. Why do you think I'm wrong? Where did you hear this? Listen, you might learn something. He might be right. There was a guy on the blog recently that was arguing with somebody else. And I got a, a little tip here for you guys. When you're doing comments on blog and debating somebody, if your comments worded 300 words, nobody's going to read it. And learn to use return and put breaks in your paragraphs, even if it's every other sentence. Because in a blog you know, comment area where things are narrowed down. When you write this long diatribe or words all stuck together, nobody can even see it. No one reads it. No one cares. But his defense of you're doing revisionist history is I have a degree in history. 
Well, how do I know you don't have a degree in revisionist history? And I'm not saying this guy does, but that's not a defense. I have a, I have a, a certificate as an educator, and I have a degree in teaching. That doesn't mean you're right. It means you've learned what you've been told, and you believe what you've been told. You have your perception biased based on the information that was given to you. If we stay locked in that, there is no innovation. Now, you might hear the student out and go, you know what? That's very well reasoned and thought out. But actually, that's not true. Let me explain to you how. Or you might go, you know what? I'm not sure, Johnny. And it's okay that I'm not sure. I'm going to check into that and get back with you. Or you might go, you know what? I don't know where you learned that from. But you keep learning. You keep learning. Because I think you're right. It's okay to be wrong, teachers. Most of you are at least once a day, just like me. I'm wrong at least once a day, I guarantee you. It's okay to be wrong. We'll never have a culture of leadership and self-sufficiency until we get to a point where we go, it's okay to be wrong. We're never going to have a self-sufficient and leadership-based culture if we keep trying to make everybody the same. Everybody's not the same. Everybody's not equal. Not everybody can do the survival. You shouldn't have a survival podcast too just because you want one. If you're as good as me at it, go do it. And if you're really great at making bows, and I want to be able to make bows, and I can't do it because I don't have the skill set you do, and even if I work at it, I'll never be the master artist you are at the way you make a bow. I'm not entitled to it, and you shouldn't give me a ribbon for my bow too so I feel the same way. Some people are athletes, and they can run faster than you can. It's okay. They should be recognized for their gifts. Some kids are smarter than other kids. Some children are stupid. I'm sorry. Oh, I can't believe you said it. I'm sorry. Some people are dumb people in a way. No person do I believe is truly stupid. I really don't. And there's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. Ignorance is lack of knowledge. Stupidity is inability, right? I believe that there's people that if you sat them down every day of their life and try to teach them calculus, they're never going to learn it. They don't want to. I'm one of them. And I don't consider myself stupid. But when it comes to calculus, I'm pretty stupid. I don't want to do that. So recognize the person that's good at it. Well, our math and science grades or whatever in the world. I don't care what our per capita math and science scores are around the world. I care what our math and science scores are for the people that are going to have careers in math and science. If we have the best of our best better than the best of another nation's best, then guess what? We're the world leader. Because it doesn't matter that Johnny has great math and science scores if his job is going to be running a tractor on a farm and there's some dignity in running a tractor on the farm. Even if he has good math and science scores. It doesn't matter. Not everybody's going to be a scientist. Not everybody's going to be a mathematician. And despite what we tell our children, no, most people aren't going to use that shit in their daily lives. They're not. If you are not an engineer or an architect, or something like that. Tell me when the last time is that you used what you learned in Algebra 2 if you can even remember what that was. Now there's ways of thinking that that evolves. But I can teach you that in a day, not a year. We need this culture of leadership and self-sufficiency. And I think the only way we're going to get it is we need to start acting for ourselves right now and not worry about but fill in the blank. But that guy over there, I don't care about him. I care about you and your own life and your own individual leadership. But those politicians won't let me figure out how to work the system, work around it, get through it, go to another place where they'll let you get a variance. I don't care. You do what you believe in now. That's the solution. Because what I said was true. 
What I hit Kunstler in the face with at the end of that interview is true. The failure in leadership in this country, in fact around the world, is not the government's fault. The greatest failure in leadership is the failure of the individual to lead. So if you want something done, lead. I'm already leading. Lead more. Breed leaders. Teach others to lead. It's easy to lead. Can you hand off leadership in certain roles and responsibilities? Can you create leaders? Do you have students? Do you have apprentices? If you don't, your ability to lead dies the day they put you in the ground or incinerate your ass. What are you leaving behind if you are a leader? And this is the good news. If you're really leading, you're creating people that will lead. Only so many people will follow you. Eventually, sometimes they get tired of following you. And they say, it's not anything he's done, he's not wrong. But I'm going to stand up and now I'm going to lead. I disagree with this particular way. So I'm going to do it my own way. Thousands upon thousands of factories of innovation. It comes from individual leadership. It comes from self-sufficiency. How can you talk of community and self-sufficiency at the same time? When I am okay, I can do the greatest good for my neighbor. When I am okay, when I have enough, I have the ability and the willingness to help. If I can't look after my family, I can't help my neighbor. When my neighborhood can look after itself, we can look after the neighborhood next to us. When we can do that, we can look after our city. When our city can look after itself, it can look after the county. And when the county can look after itself, it can look after the state. That's a republic. That's where every citizen is sentinel. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
shirt. 